It is a great pleasure to have a very busy and talented girl who is pulling off not one but two quite unique photography exhibitions in Wellington this week. One will kick off at Photospace Gallery on Courtney Place this Friday called Photo Fables and the second has just been put up at Poquito Cafe on Tory Street. It's an emotional exhibition of Danny Lemon's experience losing his 8,500 collector's item records in the storage fire earlier this year. Philippa O'Brien, you're a brave lass. Welcome to B-Sides on Access Radio. (laughs) Thanks, Laurie. Yay. Now, Philippa, just let's start with your exhibition at the photo space, which is called Photo Fables. It's a really interesting collection. What inspired the style of photography? Uh, I was inspired by a photographer by the name of Dwayne Michaels, who um, was probably most active in the 1970s. Right. And, um, yeah, I basically saw imagery of his during lectures at Massey uh, when I was training there. And just something about his work allowed me to, um, I don't know, I guess open up the creative thing and yeah does it really just stem from from that great so this is you've come from 20 years in the film industry has this influenced your style of photography as well do you think or your approach yes um yeah it absolutely has I think Mm. um it's pretty clear that I have a film background in this this body of work (laughs) um I, I guess I have a costume background and I wanted to, I guess, utilise that. Um, and Ah, so that's where the... It's kind of like a staged feel comes in with this. Yes, yeah. ab- absolutely. Um, I sort of ran with the idea of having a nine-part sequence and so that was the framework for each of the... Um, or for the whole body of work, really. And I didn't really want to have to reinvent too many things, so I guess I adopted a lifetime of the film industry into this piece of work. And because I had the confidence of film, um, the film background, the learning curve, which was learning to operate cameras and um, expose light properly and and direct, Mm. uh, was uh, the playing area, I guess. Yeah. Very interesting. Now you certainly see it's a it's quite a different approach. I, I, I'm no kind of guru on photography, but yeah, it's very intriguing. Really enjoyed looking at it. So this is a second phase of a career. Well, a sec- part two of a career for you. And but what driver? Because you spent twenty years in the film industry. What what was your motivation to then say right? I want to be a photographer. What was it about it? Um. <clears throat> Probably, essentially, it was more autonomy, really. Um, Mm. I started in the industry in the early 90s and um, have seen it through from from film through to digital. And um, I think it's just... um, There's a story right there, isn't there? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, (laughs) In that small sentence. (laughs) um, I think it was just being honest with myself about what I needed out of a career Mm. and I think that in my mid-30s I really realised that I wasn't 
um, getting out of the industry what I needed right. for myself. Yeah. Um, although it has been a huge part of my life and, and still remains um, part of my life. But I just decided that I needed to start making some movement towards something something else. Yeah. And that something else was photography. But I, I did muck around a lot trying to work out well, work that out. I yeah. Think. You wouldn't be the only one in your career, I don't think, that's kind of gone, well, what now? Um, so you, you were pretty brave and, and you, you studied at Massey and you you went back as a as as a not the same generation student. How do you word that nicely? You know, an, another generation of student. Um, how was that experience for you? Uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Told you you were brave. <laughs> It was terrifying because I really had come from an analogue background and I was walking into uh, a second-time university experience. Right, yeah. And everyone was a lot younger and they had all trained, well, you know, the, yeah, I, my, my computer navigation <laughs> skills were fairly, were fairly limited and... Um, you know, the day I walked into the computer lab where there was 70, 26-inch iMac desktops. Yeah. Um, and I finished my first CS5 lesson. I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> but um, I, there was no going back. No. And then, amazingly, you had an awesome, majorly good outcome and walked away with... How do you say honours with distinction? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did that? How did that feel like coming out with that kind of attribute after that? Uh, how do you think you gained that? I gained it from hard work. Yeah. And um, I think you know the the first time around at university, or you know. <laughs> You used to perhaps muck around, and we did back at Otago. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second time around, I knew why I was you there. You might not have been paying for it the way that, that we are now. No, <laughs> no. I, I mean, essentially, as an adult student, you go into those environments with all of the, I guess, worries and burdens of being an adult. Mm. And, um, you know, I've got a mortgage and all of those responsibilities. So uh, there wasn't, there was no time to get it wrong. Right. Well, you certainly uh, are still on the hard work buzz by putting yourself up for having two photographic exhibitions on in town at one time. Good on you. So now talking about the mortgage, you you were born in the Deep South. And so whereabouts were, did you grow up as a family again? I hadn't heard that. I didn't want to ask again. I was like, where is that? Um, <laughs> I was raised on a high country farm in a small community called Garston. Wow. Which is in um, northern Southland. Right, okay. And now you own, you know, set a mortgage, you have a mortgage with a house, for a house in Kingston. Um, what, what makes you want that to keep that connection to the Deep South? Uh, well, the land, to yeah. be honest. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Kingston is 15 minutes from my family land and... Mm. We've had the land 102 years, so... And your DNA then? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. An, it's something you can't really shake, and it's it's a big responsibility to share. So. Mm, mm. Yeah. Good. 
So, um, just now moving on to your, oh, just one more question. How do you cope then? Because what I get in that beautiful photo on our Facebook post from you today, I mean, that really gives me such a wonderful, peaceful feeling. How do you cope in an in unspacious urban lifestyle, doing what you're doing, and yet you know that there's an, oppor- you know, an option to do that as well, to have the space? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, mm, I, <clears throat> I think you just know it's there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I miss it. Okay. Yeah, I bet you do. So now let's move on to your next ex- exhibition, which, um, you know, I, I don't know the words to describe it, but will touch so many people and will be with a lot of us for a very long time. It's a real lifetime experience that you've had. So you were the photographer to witness... Danny Lemon viewing his loss of his life's work for the first time of his world-renowned Roots and Reggae collection and records. How, or actually just before we go to that, how did you meet Danny Lemon? I met Danny on my first feature film, which was called uh, AWOL, Absent Without Leave. right. And it was my very first job in film. Um, it was shot in Wellington in 1992. Wow. And Danny was the uh, property master or on-set props. Right. So You met him there. Yeah. So at what point did you become really close with Danny? Um, he was just really friendly on that job. And, yeah. um, I mean, really right from the get-go, he yeah, was just generous with um, who he was and mm. I think when you first start in the, in the industry it's a pretty daunting environment mm. and mm. Um, you're always grateful to the people <laughs> who actually um, you know give you a moment of their time but he was just yeah he was an unusual person and mm. um, and a, quite a worldly person and yeah. But, yeah, he just extended a friendship immediately. Nice. That sounds like our Danny. Hope you're listening out there, Danny. Um, now, tell me a little bit, because you told me that amazing story today about the dance party you decided to hold on Kingston. <laughs> how, how many people, just to give our listeners an idea, how, what's the population of Kingston or, or the, you know, the area, do you think? I, <laughs> she, uh, well, currently it's probably around... Maybe two hundred and fifty people, but back then, back then it might have been a hundred. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you decided to hold a dance party in Kingston, and um, just tell us a bit about this this story and Danny Lemon's involvement because this really caught me today. Okay. So the dance party uh, was called Track Syndicate, and it was um, devised. Firstly, by my younger sister, Claire, who decided to use her rollover money from a commercial um, <laughs> to have a dance party, much to my mother's horror. But anyway, um, so, and at the time, my brother Thomas was driving the Kingston Flyer, so we decided that, what a great idea, let's drive the train into the night and have a party. And, yeah, we, we managed to book the train and start creating the event and um, Claire was studying at uh, the Dunedin music TV school down there, I can't remember the name, and so she had lots of friends who were young DJs and so it wasn't long before we had a merry band of 
people really wanting to join in. And um, I guess as it started to snowball, I realised that <laughs> there was so much to do and I was really con- sort of worried about all of these young young guys coming to play music in the middle of nowhere on the train. So I thought it might be quite a good idea to have someone who was a bit older with a bit of maturity come in and maybe help manage the music side of it. And I thought, well, who do I know? And I thought, well, maybe Danny. So I tracked him down and phoned him up and asked him if he would like to have a week in Queenstown, well, in Kingston, actually. And, uh, yeah, it turned out to be really important timing for Danny to have a break out of Wellington. And so he flew down and, yeah, he... Helped us out. DJ'd. And then, so you had to take the train back at some ungodly hour of the morning. I'm just imagining this Kingston flyer being, you know, <laughs> choo-chewing through, the, through Southland. <laughs> and you left Danny there, is that right? Yeah, so um, the train um, the train went from Kingston to, it normally goes from a place, from Kingston to Fairlight, but on that night we only drove it halfway along the track yeah. to um, a station, high country station called Canard. And um, we had a, a tent and um, the actual party was in the tent and the bar was on the train. Um, <laughs> and getting, it's getting better, Philippa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... Danny played a set um, around about midnight and he played a house set, um, which was great. And then at about six in the morning, we had to um, drive the train back in reverse, (laughs) by the way. Um, And um, I remember going out to say to Danny, oh, look, um, you know, you've got half an hour. And he said, hell no, (laughs) I've got a tent. And I'm going to play reggae. And I thought, fair enough. Yep. And so we left Danny in the tent and he played for himself, um, I think, for another three or four hours. I came back about four hours later for him. And, yeah, he, I think, got to play music very loud for himself. <laughs> Good on him. And that really just expresses Danny's love for his his music as well. The fact that he see, I would have gone off at the party on the train, but Danny, good on you. So not many people have heard that story, ladies and gentlemen. But I think that's quite a unique New Zealand story that you can rent a train <laughs> and make it the party. I like it. Okay, so just. Just talking about Danny and and getting to the fire. So so you went with Danny on that first day. How how was that experience to to see what had actually happened there? Uh, well, it was. I mean, it was really sobering. Yeah. Um, and it was quite harrowing, actually, too. I guess. Um, but there was four of us. There was um, Danny and Cora and Joff and myself. Right. And I think. You know, Cor and Joff got on with the business of cleaning up, mm. um, and I got about trying to make images. And um, uh, I took a film camera and um, a medium format camera, and the light was quite low, so everything was long exposures on a tripod. Um, so I, I guess I was pretty surprised that I got the images I did mm. because it was 
a deeply personal time for Danny and um, but you know we were on a time limit it wasn't right. uh, well, yeah it was sort of get in and um, you know find anything that we could to um, take out and obviously um, it was charred remains most of the things but yeah. but uh, you know the photos show what we did what we did find and there was some remarkable things that came out of it but yeah it was it was pretty sad yeah yeah and um just going and looking through your shots today or your prints which are beautiful but you really there's no way I I thought I might be slightly immune to it as a you know just being a bit close to it but yeah, there's there's no way you can not have empathy for that that situation. It's such a waste. You spoke about there were some amazing things you did find that that felt otherworldly. The um, especially the the Martin Luther King and speaking to Malcolm X mm. was that just kind of the centre that was left of that, or yeah, um, there was that, and of course there was the um, Roots Foundation. Um, Flyers uh, with Bob Marley's image on them. Yeah, I, I guess you know Danny knows the the work mm. so much better than I do, and but the survivors survived. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing. When you were shooting that, you would have had no idea that you were going to be able to turn it into you know the devastation into an, an art form. When did that kind of come to light, that that could be a possibility? Uh, well, as I said earlier, it was, you know, the light was, it was quite dark in there and it was, you know, it was really dirty and black. Mm, a bit charred. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't really sure if my exposures were going to be any good and after developing the negs, I scanned them and I think, you know, in the process of scanning I realised that there was a body of work there, and um, yeah, I knew then. Right, amazing. And so now you've also you've been able to make a poster, which is now which has got a collection of the charred remains. And and who chose those rec- those remainders of these beautiful records that symbolise so much? Uh, well, Danny chose them, um, yeah, so you know, based on um, their importance and possibly um, the representation of what his collection had. Yeah, nice. And so although this has been a devastating experience, because I guess Wellington, Greater Wellington, and many people that have known Danny have enjoyed so much and shared so much through this music that Danny's spent his life collecting and has now gone. But you've also seen a positive side um, in the community that, that's come out. Could you explain to us what your what your take or what your feeling of that is? Yeah. Um, I think because the subject matter is music, it's, mm. it's you know, it's universal I guess it sounds like a cliche, but it really is. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with the way in which Danny so um, generously shared his music with people and uh, I guess 
you know, he's been around a long time, so his collection has influenced a lot of music here in Wellington and, yes. and obviously right throughout the country. So. Yes, he was one of the first to, to start. He knew there was a space for him to be able to talk through his music, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I think a lot of people have come on board. And, you know, as with um, Grant Smithy's stories on, in the Sunday Star Times, he talks as... Um, you know, as a collector himself, and he has um, drawn attention to how it's a shared, I guess, experience for a lot of people who collect vinyl. Um, you know, it's precious mm. and um, and it's expensive, and it's your worst nightmare is to lose it in mm. the way in which Danny has lost it. Mm. Um, I guess people think about it, and it's the usual thing. You, you know, you. You don't think it will happen to you, but in this yeah. instance, it has happened. And it's, as Danny said, it's, it wasn't a solid gold collection. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's a, I, people I think are understanding that it's it's a cultural loss. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was worth a lot of money. Yeah. And a lot of heart and soul. Mm. So, Philippa, you've also been the driver to, you know, to help Danny fundraise through developing this poster, making these prints. They are for sale. They're for sale. Some of them are they're at hundred dollars each. Is that correct? That's right. So, if you want to have a beautiful piece of art that is memorabilia for what I see as a community coming together, actually, that's a celebration. Um, where can people go to? to source this? There's a website, uh, dannylemon.com, and everything is available there. Um, If you'd like to... So the poster... Oh, yes, so the poster and the prints. Yes. Um, The poster will be available from Poquito, hopefully from Thursday this week. Great. And Eero, which is in Tasman Street. And we're just awaiting some confirmation from an outlet in... Auckland, probably Conch. Yay, go! We love you, Conch. <laughs> and in Wellington, not entirely sure, but it'll probably be a rough peel. Okay, great. Um, one more question for you, Philippa O'Brien. You have put so much work into this for Danny, and why have you wanted to do this? Um, it's been like a train of consciousness, really. It's just kind of happened, um, but. Yeah, I guess it's friendship. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you for creating such beautiful work on behalf of Wellington, and I'm sure Danny is right here going, yes, thank you, Philippa. So beautiful talent put to good work. Thank you so much. And, you know, I wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for this, so good on you.